I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Hi there. I Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Rob Eshman, He's a writer, educator, filmmaker, and scholar from Chicago. He's a proud product of the Chicago Public Schools and received his PhD from the University of Chicago in 2017. Dr. Eshman writes on educational inequality, community violence, racism, social media, and youth well-being. His research seeks to uncover individual, group, and institutional level, level barriers to racial and economic equity, and he pays special attention to the heroic efforts everyday people make to combat those barriers. Dr. Eshman's first book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age, is an engaging and comprehensive exploration of the ways technology and online communication are changing how we experience, understand, and respond to racism, both online and in person. He's among the first scholars to systematically explore the effects of online experiences and real-world outcomes. From his work on the relationship between online communication and community violence to his current work on race and racism in the digital era, Dr. Eshman's research bridges the gap between virtual and face-to-face -face experiences. He directs the Digital Race Lab and a research center for studying the effects of online racial discourse on people of color and society. He wrote and directed Choose Your Resistance, an immersive multi-perspective film about choosing to challenge racism. Coming out of his research investigating the connection between racism, resistance, and mental health, this film is both art and intervention. Dr. Eshman is an associate professor at the Columbia University School of Social, Social Work and a faculty associate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Previously, he taught at the Boston University School of Social Work, where he also served as the assistant director of research at the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. He has taught courses on race, storytelling, urban education, poverty policy, statistics, and program evaluation. Dr. Rob Eshman, thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks, Jill, for having me. I'm happy to be here. I was going through your bio before this interview, and I was like, I just want to uh, include all of it. Like, there's so much that's so <laughs> interesting, and and um, this I have I haven't really had a chance to tackle this aspect, um, the the intersection of of technology um, and social media and racism um, anywhere near as deeply as I would like to. So um, I'm just really excited to to get in. To this, um, maybe if you could start by sharing a little bit about your your background and what led you to getting into this work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went to grad school. I think I've I, been interested in educational inequality and education reform for a long time. I was actually in high school. I went to Chicago Public Schools, and I was in high school when I read Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozol, and and, and really. Um, um, Pointing out the ways that that um, inequities in school funding led to really horrific 
inequities and educational outcomes. And that that became a point of interest for me of, of, of wondering whether, um, you know, through education reform, we could uh, stop the the reproduction of of you know uh, racial inequality and 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 opportunities that 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 kids have or or do not have, and so I think that 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 um, you know so I went to grad school wanting to be an educational researcher and reformer, and the way the the way that I really um, began thinking seriously about um, studying technology, it, uh, yeah, I think my first. My first year in grad school, I took a class where we read a book by Eduardo Bonilla Silva, Racism Without Racists, and it talked about the way that the dominant form of racism had moved from um, being overt in the kind of the pre-classic uh, civil civil rights movement era or the Jim Crow era to being covert, which is nowadays where we think about what does racism look like microaggressions, the subtle forms of racism, this is a big buzzword that in mainstream settings, the the normative way that people experience racism is not through overt yelling in your face or, or violence that happens every day. Of course, those things still do happen, but they are rare compared to the type of microaggressions that people may experience every day, multiple times a day. Um, but I was struck by how this this theory of of how racism had become more subtle applied to many mainstream um, settings, but it did not apply to online um, um, places. And so one of the one of the stories that I start my book with is talking about how when I was a college student, the first time I was called the N-word maliciously was by was when I was playing online video games. Mm. And it's just something that was so normal. So from YouTube comments to comments on news articles to playing video games online, different online forums, Explicit racism is just so much more common online than it is in face-to-face situations, and it made me right. It kind of left me with the question of, of how does you know how how do we make sense of online racism being more explicit, given the fact that that you know the leading re- the scholarship on on racism is saying that that the dominant form of racism is to be more covert, um, and 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 really this project began. When um, and so you know, this is the question that I kind of had in the back of my head for a while, right? It's not what I was studying. I started the, the the study for this book when I became aware of an online forum on a college campus where students were um, allowed to post um, anonymously, um, and and this right, it was, it was meant to be a place where students could talk about controversial things without feeling um, you know uncomfortable. Uh, but what it turned into is just a place that was known for being incredibly racist and homophobic. And uh, the, you know, this is the 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 key difference about this this forum was that you had to be a student to post on the website. And so that meant that that, you know, when we think about racism in random online spaces, you can rationalize it as, oh, who who the racists are behind that? Who, what are the assumptions you have about racists? You may think they're from the South or they're uneducated, they're ignorant. Um, right, these are these are assumptions that are not not necessarily the truth about where racism lives. But when right with this website, you had to be a student at the school in order to post, and then the moderator anonymized the comments. It meant that um, these were your friends, these are your peers, these are people who are you know attending the same you know elite liberal minded school that you're going to, who had these horrible things to say. And um, the study began with me talking to students about you know, their experiences with racism in person, online, and and whether and how 
this uh, online forum changed the way that they thought about race and racism. And so started as a case study that then I, you know, expanded by talking to students at different schools and, you know, gathering some survey data and doing analysis of, of millions of tweets over a decade. Um, but but right, the, the story really began with trying to understand the contradiction of experiences with explicit racism in a world where the norm has been for a long time for racism to to be more hidden. That's so fascinating. I mean, you and I were just talking right before this started about the like nasty comments on YouTube and stuff and 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 how people just feel so free to say, and I don't know if some of them are actually bots or not, like some of them are actually humans and some of them aren't, mm -hmm. but really the nastiest stuff. Um, so that's so interesting. So when, how did the book come to be? So you, you, you said it started as a, a case study and then you kind of expanded it and we're looking at Twitter. Uh, a lot of tweets and um, different different students from different campuses. How what 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 is the general? Without giving it all away, I guess like yeah, what, yeah. what message you want people to um, to get from your book? Okay, all right. So two things. So first, how it came to be is that this the the book began with my doctoral dissertation. So my dissertation was based on interviews with stu students of color at one school. And then once I finished my PhD and I had my first um, faculty job, I began to, um, you know, I, I was getting data from other schools um, because I wanted to tell a broader story than just having one site. And then I realized I didn't just want to tell a story about how the Internet changes the way the students experience and understand and respond to racism, but I wanted to 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 think more broadly. How is the right? How is online communication changing the way that the world, the people in the world, um, you know, are are experiencing these things? And so that's why I ended up, you know, gathering a survey and then also um, using you know data mining to to use Twitter data to explore some of the theories that I was finding through interviews and, and student stories and to see whether or how those same things play out. Um, in the broader internet social media um, universe. And so that's that's kind of how the book came to be. So this is something that, you know, my dissertation was finished in 2017. So some of the ideas came from that. But then the rest is, you know, this is the, the first five years of my of being a faculty. I've been gathering new data that I that all made its way into this book. And so it's been a long, it's been a long journey. And along the way, I really rewrote everything as I found my voice and how to talk about rigorous ideas and, and very serious concepts, but then in ways that are, um, right, that, that, that I, I worked very hard to not write this in academic language and the language that I was trained to write in, right? I, I, I wrote this in a way that I wanted to be accessible and engaging and really try to um, communicate complex ideas in ways that, um, you know, uh, um, you know, um, lay folks can understand that that's something that that is that is friendly to people who do not study or fight racism um, for a living. Um, and then the second part of your study, kind of what are the main points? And so I, I, um, this is this is the harder one to answer, I, I, I guess. But um, and I'll try to give the short version just so that I don't talk for the rest of the time of our podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah, I'll, you know, we can get have some more conversation in here. But really, it's a it's a story about the uh, you know so the 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 one liner is this is a this is a, a book about the way that the online communication changes how we experience understand and respond to racism and the responding is key for me because I think that 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 the, what I what I am doing is I'm showing the causes of changes in online communication and how that changes how people talk about race 
Um, and I'm, I'm showing the consequences of that. What are the effects that it has on people of color in society? And then I'm also showing right uh, um, resistance. And that is the big focus of the book. So part two of the book or the second half of the book really um, takes a look at how people are using digital tools to challenge racism in new, innovative, and exciting ways. And that right, that this is not a story of just, oh, racism is more ugly online, and that's bad. This is a story of racism is becoming revealed through its ugliness online and that young folks of color young activists are you know using this proof of the fact that racism still exists in a world that thought that maybe you know it was behind us to find new ways to fight racism and and to to bring more people onto the anti-racist bandwagon and i don't i don't say that term in a negative way i mean that in a, in, in a way of you know there are people who were not fighting racism because they didn't think it was a big deal and now, largely in online spaces, more people are understanding how much of an impact racism still has on our lives, on our society, and 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 that is, you know, increasing interest in, in people wanting to challenge um, racist norms or racist institutions. What surprised you the most during the process of researching and writing the book? Yeah, I, you know, without a doubt, it's the resistance aspect that I, I went into the study really just trying to push back on or extend dominant theories of racism as being more subtle. And so what I thought I was going to be telling would be a, was going to be a sad story of the way that, that um, people were being hurt by overt racism and to not think that that was behind us. But really what I found is that despite all the hurt and negativity and, and hostile interactions that take place online, the young folks of color were not backing down from these spaces. They're not deciding not to fully engage in online communication because things can get ugly. Instead, they're using the same online tools that can amplify racist voices that, to amplify counter narratives, to amplify anti-racist messages, to highlight, expose, and challenge racism in ways that we haven't seen, uh, um, you know, part of me wants to say for a long time, but another part of me wants to say ever that, that a lot of this is new. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think that it really is changing the game in terms of, of, uh, you know, the, the, the rules of racial discourse are being flipped, the things that it, it's appropriate to talk about in public, right. That, that, um, that, that, that online activists and folks of color are, are, are changing the script and, and making it so that their voices um, have to be heard, whether or not, you know, um, folks in charge, would would want to give them the mic in those situations. Yeah. How wonderful is that? Because I feel like there's less often hope in in these discussions. You know, there's so much bad out there. Mm -hmm. um, I love I love that there's such a strong current of resistance that you that you found and 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 have been able to amplify. Um I'm curious if 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 let me know if you're okay going here, but about Twitter um, mm -hmm. and its new ownership. And, yeah. um, you know, I've, I've heard, I don't spend a lot, I never have spent a lot of time on Twitter, but a lot of, you know, uh, communities of disabled people talking about how this was a huge place for them to, to have community. I'm curious your insight on how the transition of ownership has impacted resistance, at least on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think that, that there have been stories of um, increased racism on Twitter after Elon took over. I think that there was worry, um, you know, people asking, is Black Twitter going to be the same? Mm -hmm. Excuse me, lots of people putting up their Mastodon profiles and their Twitter bios, just anticipating the day when they no longer could be a part of Twitter. 
um, and, and wanting to, you know, allow their communities to, to, to move on to a, a new place. Other people left Twitter because they felt it got too ugly. Um, and I think all those things happened, but I don't think that, that those things have destroyed the magic of Black Twitter or the magic of Twitter being a place where, um, you know, where, where, where counter narratives are shared. I think that the big, you know, when we think about traditional media sources versus social media. The big difference is that traditional media sources are gatekeepers of information. They decide what stories they want to tell. And for activists, for folks of color who have stories that that are that are not known, um, who 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 right, that, that it can be difficult to get the attention of mainstream media gatekeepers in order yeah. to tell those stories. And what has happened with Twitter is that now the attention is on folks who are doing work on the ground. The attention has been placed on activists who, um, you know, who got their start, you know, right? There, there are some activists with millions of followers now who got their start just by, you know, being organizers on the ground, just by showing up to protests and being given the job of, oh, you're going to be the person to tweet these things. Mm -hmm. And they've built communities where now they're able to amplify anti-racist efforts. And I think that that is a huge you know, change in dynamic where the right where, where social media is a way to uh, um, to you know to to be able to share counter narrative. When I say counter narrative, right, a dominant way of of, of viewing um, inequality would be that right that the people earn their place in society, and then a counter narrative is saying no, no, this is a this is how this policy is racist, even though it doesn't say that it's going to discriminate on a surface level. Here's how we can see its effects as being racist, and so. I think that there's evidence that that um, you know um, there's one there's a study that looked at during the Ferguson protest hubs for information sharing and found that black activists on the ground were bigger hubs for information sharing than were mainstream news outlets. And so Twitter has forced the issue, and it, it it and right now you have mainstream news media who they have to follow folks on Black Twitter in order to have the you know their stories, and you know sometimes they cite them, other times there's kind of uh, they're stealing the you know the informal knowledge production that happens on Black Twitter, um, but but Black Twitter cannot be ignored. I, I think that it is still a force despite this change in ownership. I think there is potential for um, you know mainstream right for for the big social media companies to become the new gatekeepers if algorithms um, start to limit anti-racist content in ways that they had not before. Um, but but right but thus far I don't think that we. Uh, um, seen that happen very consistently although there are have been stories of it happening from tiktok with black creators saying that they're they're you know they're, they're kind of being uh, um soft banned um or you know i, I think it, it also happened when um there were protests around palestine in 2021 where people who are who are posting a lot of videos would get messages from instagram saying they are not allowed to post anymore on this subject and you know instagram said it was the error but that this is just an example of how social media companies can become gatekeepers in the same way that um, you know that that the mainstream media has become. So it's something that that I think you know uh, um, people are keeping their eyes on. And if a social media company really um, stopped you know allowing folks to to use the, you know their platform in the way that they want to use it, I, I think that ultimately you know. Um, there's a Elon has a has a capitalist interest in keeping black folks on Twitter. 
Mm. Right. The most used hashtag of all time is Black Lives Matter. And so you're talking about if you if, if if they really were to do something at Twitter to to keep black Twitter away, that that would be a big, you know, hurt on the on the bottom line. Right. Where some of the biggest, you know, uh, um, stories that that come out of Twitter have been, you know, anti-oppressive. So from Black Lives Matter, say her name, the Me Too movement. That these are things that that right. That if you try to silence the voices of activists that you're going to end up with a platform that is much less interesting so i think i think that you know for now i um you know i, I don't know that they're um you know that that things have gone as badly as some folks anticipated they might um but then uh, you know at the same time we do need to be wary of of what social media companies could decide to do if they think that it's in their best interest to silence the voices of people who who want to challenge um, current, you know, power structures and systems. Yeah. Okay. So you said Mastodon and I have to admit, I do not have any idea. Mastodon is. And I think that's, I don't even know if that's what you said, but I guess yeah. I'm assuming that I don't want to assume anything. Please tell me what Mastodon is. <laughs> it's just, it's just another, it's just another, um, platform that okay. folks can use. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't spent too much time on it. I just, I just know that, that lots of kind of black, activist folks um who i've seen in my own personal network have created accounts right uh, um where i think that the things they post on twitter they're posting there too and it, it really is just kind of a protection of if this community goes down that we are going to survive because we we already have some but we already have a backup I, um, but but yeah yeah i'm so glad that exists because i i mean i figured brilliance makes things happen and necessity also makes things happen and mm -hmm. I'm just I'm not in the social media world enough to know are there other places um like where do you get your what what, what uh networks do you connect into I'm on Twitter I'm on Instagram um I think I get most of my uh, um kind of social media news from those places I'm not on Mastodon um you know at some point i may be i think i think for now like the the that you know it seems like you know jack dorsey at twitter i know that he had a special relationship with some black activists and it seemed like they were getting some kind of insider information and 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 in a positive way treatment of of you know jack asking folks what do you need in order for twitter to be most useful for this fight um and i think that you know they're not going to get that from elon but uh, on the whole, I think that, you know, it's still a, a social media platform that wants to, you know, collect our, our data and sell it to advertisers and make money off of advertising. And, you know, who, right, the fact that Elon owns it, some policies have changed, but 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 on the whole, I don't know that it, it is going to um, change the way that, that you know, for, for me, at least, it hasn't changed how I um, get information. That's reassuring to hear. Yeah. Um, I have... I have stayed away from it. I've just felt like his tweets find their way into my, uh, what's it called? Thread or mm -hmm. whatever it's called. I can't even think of the word right now, but, and I'm like, I don't want to see his tweets. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't follow him. I didn't ask for this. Um, yeah. I'm curious. I've, I've been uh, part of a lot of conversations about AI recently, and I'm, I'm curious mm -hmm. if your work has delved into that arena or, you know, formally or informally your thoughts on AI and racism and, and technology and how that all fits together. Yeah, you know, I um, have not done any official studies, uh, you know, on on AI. I think that I've had lots of conversations with people who understand these things, mm -hmm. you know, much much more than I do. That um, where you know, it's a 
it's a little scary. So both as a science fiction fan where, you know, you never, you know, I don't want to live in the matrix. And so that means that I'm a little scared of AI on, on some level. Right. But really the, the, the immediate issue in terms of um, how does this affect the, the anti-racist fight is that if AI can be used, right. We, you, you mentioned bots uh, on comments uh, that are racist comments coming from racist bots or are they coming from people? We don't know who's behind these anonymous comments. I think when we think look at misinformation that has you know kind of the explosion of misinformation during the pandemic and before and since um that may be the scariest immediate place um for uh, um AI is that if you have AI empowered misinformation campaigns around issues that relate to race specifically that could be very dangerous um, you know, some I think th there there was research showing that some high percentage of the top evangelical Facebook pages were troll factories, right? That these are not real mm. places. These are these are sites that are designed to get people riled up. And we know how evangelicals vote as a block, right? Eighty percent voted for Trump, and that is what's scary: is that um, can AI strengthen the efforts that people have to manipulate folks politically to get them to support racist policies? Uh, um, or, or to to drum up racial fears or resentment using AI empowered writing and sharing uh, and you know the, the dissemination of racist ideas and so I think that that is that is very much a risk um, I think you know um, and that's something that is um, you know it's immediately possible it is possible for people to be using AI in those ways right now um, and and yeah so I think I think that's the you know one of the scariest pieces. Of, of what's coming but of course you know there's a whole host of of, of other questions that that you know we're going to continue to be asking and talking about in terms of how it's going to you know affect the gig economy and and you know how advanced is it going to get are they going to be writing peer-reviewed articles soon is that going to put uh, you know uh, you know academics out of business or, you know it's a yeah yeah <laughs> that's super interesting uh, academia as a whole I was I was part of medical academia uh, in my mm -hmm. previous lifetime, and uh, definitely a lot of hierarchical kind of systematic things that are are. Um, I I think it might be a, a pretty cool thing if some of that got uprooted, but maybe um, in a way that's bringing power to people, not to machines. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. How so? I know a lot of the work you talk about is how online platform platforms can foster community violence, and you just you you mentioned that a little bit um, in terms of AI. Where is how are some of the ways that you see social media impacting the amount of violence? Um, and and then after that, I'd love to talk more about the resistance and and specific ways that you you have found that people are fighting that. Yeah, yeah. So in grad school, I did some work around um, social media and community violence, where we talked with um, gang-involved uh, or adjacent youth about um, social media messaging and how that impacted you know, violence in the street. One of the things we found, so right, so there's this thing called online the online disinhibition effect, which talks about how online conversations tend to get more hostile. Just this, the lack of eye contact makes humans feel more comfortable being more brutal to each other than they would be in a face-to-face -face situation. And so the, you know, the, the question, uh, right. So I, I think that the, you know, my original question in studying race and racism online was how does the online disinhibition effect 
impact conversations about race because right this is right we have increased hostility no matter what the, the conversation is but when we're talking about race then now how does that impact how you know people now think and, and talk about racism differently or express racism differently and so i took that same question and and, and applied it to the social media and violence um, situation of how right when we think about the online disinhibition effect what impact does this have in high violence communities where you have folks from you know different you know gang sets who 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 may be at war and what we found is that you have lots of online um um threats and 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 discussions that can be the start of violent incidents that someone is going to a rival neighborhood and posting a picture saying hey I'm here you guys aren't really tough if you were really tough you wouldn't allow me to walk on your block then other guys are looking at the social media and deciding, oh, okay, but now we know where he is. We can go get this person. And this is going to be a way that violence starts. That posting, making fun of someone who's passed away can can anger the, the friends of that person. And now, okay, now you have another incident of violence that, that, violence that gets started. And so, right, it was really exploring what role does social media have in facilitating acts of violence, but then also talking with violent you know um, activists and violent prevention workers about how they use social media in order to better um you know uh, um um help in situations where their their role is to try and stop violence before it starts and we found that before there were formal policies about social media usage you had violence prevention workers who were informally getting access to someone's facebook to figure out what is like where are people angry and where do i now direct my in-person intervention in order to stop an act of violence from happening and so right so again this is something where we see kind of the right i i, I really don't like to talk about social media as being either bad or good it's more like it can be used for bad it can facilitate acts of violence it can be used for good it can be used to prevent acts of violence and 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 so that was that that was that research um, right, which really was was talking with folks who were on the ground before, um, you know, people in, in academia were thinking about these things, that the folks on the ground were already doing the work. And really, you know, the series of papers that came out of that were just about, um, you know, us learning from from folks who were who were already, you know, innovating their their kind of on the ground um, practices, you know, to, to keep up with technology. What are your what are your um I guess thoughts on the kind of January 6th type violence and social media in, in that sense? I think what you were discussing now was more like in the commute within a community or within mm -hmm. communities. How do you see social media playing a role in larger kind of insurrection-y type stuff? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of research around how white supremacists use online tools in order to build and, you know, develop their networks in order to recruit people to think like them, um, in order to plan events, you know, from, you know, kind of protests and rallies to things like January 6th. And so I, I think we know the white supremacists have a good grip on technology and have been using it for a long time. Um, you know, one, one cool example, uh, right, a study by Jesse Daniels looked at um, a fake website, which for a while there was a martinluthering.org was a white supremacist website where they just told lies about Dr. King. And, you know, kids are going to this website to get information on their school reports and not knowing that this is the racist interpretation yeah. of um, Martin Luther King. 
Right, which is, you know, it's just, it, I think white supremacists have been a, ahead of the curve in figuring out how do we use websites in order to, you know, um, manipulate how people think about race. So um, absolutely, January 6th is related. In particular, the way I think about these things is that online expressions of racism have begun to normalize, excuse me, more explicit discussions or more explicit expressions of racism in ways that um, um, make people feel comfortable with these with 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 that version of of talking racist. So look at someone like Trump. Trump really built his platform and his you know his campaign on Twitter. And then when he goes and has speeches and he's saying things in a way that is a little bit um, you know less careful and refined than the way Republicans usually talk uh, right about about policies that Trump wasn't necessarily more conservative than other Republicans, but he was just a little bit more explicit about the racist motivation behind conservative policies. Mm -hmm. And I think that right now we see some Republican congressmen who are really, you know, trained in the school of Trump, where they they really are um, serious about continuing to say and do inappropriate things because it, it boosts their campaign funding. That, yeah. right, that you have people who who are attracted to, instead of pretending like you know, we're locking black folks up in prison just because they did something wrong, being open about the fact, right? Like being, being a little bit more open about the stereotypes, um, you know, that are behind some of these racist policies. And so I think that um, that something like January 6th is the manifestation of years and years of, you know, white supremacist organizing, of, of online racism being normalized, of, of the normalizing of, of, of folks um, you know, or and even when it comes to January 6th and this idea that Trump is still the winner, right? It, it, this is also this is the product of online misinformation campaigns that that people really truly believing that Trump won the election despite there being no evidence, and it's it's scary to see, right? How how such a you know I think I um, I took my kids camping, and we had to drive you know to get out to the place where you camp, we had to drive by some. Um, you know, some Trump friendly areas. And there were so many signs that were talking about, oh, Trump is still the president. And I was just baffled that, right? Like in my circle, we, right? Like I think for fo- those of us who live in kind of liberal bubbles, where you may not realize how much, right? How many people truly believe the lies that are spread through online misinformation. Yeah, it's like alternate realities. It's almost like which portal did you go through that morning? to uh-huh. life and what do you see and who are you talking to yeah. um, what what are i were i want to be mindful of the time but before we before we go i'd love to um talk a little bit more about the resistance um you mentioned mm-hmm. black twitter are there other places of resistance that you want to highlight yeah you know in my book i try like i i talk some about the the large scale resistance but I really want to focus more on everyday people, and I'm 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 interested in telling the stories of the types of resistance efforts that don't necessarily make the news, but they are hugely important mm-hmm. in challenging the the ways that racism um, operates. And so, one of those is uh, you know research on racial microaggressions shows that the most common way to respond to race to to microaggressions is to not respond. And so what's normalized is for people to have experiences with subtle forms of racism and just not say anything about it. 
They, they may not be sure that that was really racism. They may be scared to respond because they could lose their job or lose a friendship. Someone who doesn't want to make jokes around them anymore because they think, oh, you're too serious. You don't have a sense of humor. And so people just tend to let those things go. But we know that they have a negative health effect over the long term, that, that letting those things go over years and years is, is going to impact your stress, mental health, et cetera. Um, and what I found online is that a lot of the barriers to responding to racial microaggressions are lessened and that the norms are that more people are willing to speak up and challenge racism. Folks of color feel empowered online um, when they both by their own ability to challenge racism, but also by witnessing other people challenge racism. And this is something that I found in interviews, but then I then put it in my survey and an exciting finding from you know an impress uh, um, um, publication right now is that when people witness someone else respond to racism, when they respond to racism themselves, or when they post online about an experience with racism, any of those forms of resistance have the effect of reducing the harmful impact of racism on mental health outcomes, including um, stress, anxiety, and depression. And so, right, that, that that really resistance can be protective. It doesn't it doesn't eliminate the effect of racism, but it can reduce the harmful effects of racism. And so that really, right, so that you know that that's something I talk a lot about in my book, and then you know in in, in my filmmaking work that that has led to my um, you know developing a virtual reality film that models different ways of responding to racial microaggressions in order to try and you know, really take some of the innovative work that, that folks are doing in online spaces and see whether we can replicate these types of, uh, um, you know, um, um, resistance efforts in face-to-face -face situations. How can we make people feel more empowered to be able to challenge racism um, in their everyday lives? I love that. I love that. Um, God, that's so, there's like so many levels of impact there. It's, it's pretty amazing to think about. Um, how can people find you first off you mentioned twitter i'm going to put all these stuff i'm going to link all the books you've talked about um and of course your book as well but uh and your social handles but for people who don't look at show notes how can people yeah 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 uh so on twitter i'm rob eshman on instagram i'm rob.eshman and then my book when the hood comes off racism and resistance in the digital age um you can be found anywhere books are, are sold um, you can order it on Amazon, order it through Barnes and Noble, order it through Goodreads. Um, and then, you know, if there's a local bookstore you want to support, you can also go in there and, and ask them to order it and they, you, you can get it that way. That's amazing. Um, and you have another book coming out. Yes. No, no. Ju I just have the one book. Okay. For some reason, I thought you're, you're, um, oh, a novel. You're writing a novel. Oh, I, I am writing that. a novel. I forgot that I put that on my website. Yes, yes, I do have a <laughs> I do have a first draft of a novel, but it is not something that is done. Um, I actually this summer hope to have some time to get back to it. But I very yeah, I very much I do write fiction in my free time, and um, you know I think that the film was the first time that I got to combine kind of my love of of writing fiction with my research interests, and so I am very interested in in finding ways to use you know creative work and storytelling to um, you know to to still be, you know, still engage in acts of resistance. And, 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 and I think the stories can be powerful in that way. Um, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, 
to chat with me. Um, I'm so excited to share this with my audience. Um, so much to learn. And um, I think if, if, if there's one thing you want people to take away from this, do you have one last, anything else you want to share? Oh, just keep resisting in whatever way, you know, you have the energy to and the whatever way you can. Um, and then, you know, I hope the folks are able to read and, and, and interact with the book. Let me know what you think. Feel free to hit me up on any of my social media channel, ch channels. Um, you know, I love to engage with folks who are engaging with the book. Amazing. All right. Well, Dr. Rob Eshman, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.